The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself, if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Two stories for you this evening. Our first, a meditation of sorts on the power of the written word and the cruel things that lurk within the dusty pages. But don't be afraid. I promise you, this story will leave you with a smile. From author David Sharrock, I give you The Mummer Man. Where do I start with this? He won't tell me. So, I'll start at the beginning. That's probably as good a place as any. I'm a bibliophile. I love books, I love reading, and I, I love collecting books. Or at least I did. It's changed now, of course. I joined a group, a local book club, in the hope of meeting new people. I'd just come out of a shitty relationship and I was low, feeling pretty hollowed out. Most of my friends were her friends, and when we split, they mostly sided with her. So, I was single and friendless. Thought maybe I'd start over. Make a new circle. I saw on Reddit some life hack about local interest groups as a way of finding like-minded fellows. So, naturally, I thought, 
what about a book club? And, and it was a good club. But it's changed lately. It's far more serious now. It's not so much fun as it was to start with. A lady called Tara ran the book club. She was single and pretty, but also pretty strange. Hippie guru. I decided early on that she and I were not going to socialize outside the club. The club met once a week here in her cottage, all low beams and exposed stonework and log fires. The first couple of meets were okay. Fun. Like I said, the people were quite nice, really. Each session, we took it in turns to bring a book we intended to read. Everyone else had to source the same book and read it ready for the next meet. We actually did that, too. This wasn't one of those book clubs where everyone used the book thing as an excuse to meet and chew the fat. I liked the fact that we read the books and then talked about them. I liked the fact that they were all proper bibliophiles. Like me. I liked that. But I don't like it now. It was a happier time. It's so dark now. It's not at all like it was. Yes, yes, I, 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 I'm typing. It was my turn to choose a book, so I went for a walk and popped into a flea market bookstore, a place I'd never been before. It was musty, just like I like it. Downstairs was local history, upstairs fiction, hobbies, children's literature... The staircase between floors was open plan and turned a corner halfway. Here was a half landing and a bookcase marked Esoterica. I have a look. Weird books about mysteries, magic, and miracles. I pick up an Eric von Daniken. Ancient Aliens. I decide to make this the book club's next read. Before leaving, my eyes fall on something poking out from under the bookcase. I pull out a crusty old tome, leather-bound and cracked, and I, I love this kind of thing. So, I peel it open to find I'm reading a book of black magic. I buy the books, 50 cents each, dog-eared and old, and that's the way I like it. The next book club session is next evening. I take out the Von Daniken. This is our next read. I get some groans. The old tome is in my bag and Steve spots it. What's that? I share the tome around and everyone has a look. It raises some eyebrows, especially when Steve turns to the back and unfolds a Ouija board. I hadn't noticed it before. It's printed on the back cover, which is bifold. What's this? Steve asks. He shows me and the others. It's a poem. Written around the edge. Dost thou seek the mummer man? 
lurking in the gimcrack land. What a gawk, that son of Pan. Let's haul him forth, let's drag him down. Let's speak together, a timorous clan, calling forth the Mummer Man. Let's say together that Bacchanal, hoy, hoy, two, three, round and round, all fingers now upon the planchette. Speak again with voices dulcet, Mummer Man. We call you lad. Come play with us and make us glad. The group debates. Play with the board and intone the chant. Or not. I wasn't fussed, but Tara wouldn't. She was frightened, but the others are skeptics. Don't believe the mumbo-jumbo. So we give it a go with a grin and a laugh. Steve and me and anyone who wants to join in. We put fingers on the planchette and recite the chant. When we reach the last word, the planchette doesn't move and nothing happens. I get bored and put the book away. And we get on with the rest of the evening. Tara is tense. And I ask her what her problem is. There's nothing at the Ouija board. I tell her it's nonsense. But she's trembling. I laugh. I tell her I'd go put the book in my car if it makes her feel better. She wouldn't answer. It's annoying. It's so annoying. And I said, that's annoying. Hippie guru. It's a tiresome thing. We use her house, but she's a useless hippie. I can see him. She cries out. Who? The mummer man? She said. Tara's bullshit act, I call it. Uh, yeah, okay. Someone clears the air with a smirk. Shall we get back to the books? But Tara's not letting go. Quivering finger toward the door. He's coming. Oh, for fuck's sake. I have to concur. Horror movie cliches to embellish the Tara drama. Attention-seeking, always the same. I take out my phone. Camera on. What are you doing? Asks Steve. I'm getting a photo of the Mummer Man. What else? And then... Everything changes. Clickety-click. Everything changes. Lickety-split. Imagine that you were living a life when one day you find a door to another world. But that world is reality. And yours is a sham. Your life is delusion in rules and truths written for by a liar whom you admire like watching your killer slide the knife across your belly dipping the tip into the button pushing, 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 pushing so that everything sinks like a piece of elastic to show the curve of space 
sea. How the gravity sinks. See how the blood bubbles up. None of it is real. Only the pain is true. This is how I felt. You can buy my feeling at the bookstore counter. Fifty cents to you. I don't know what he is. But he's here now. Where Tara said he would be. The hallway. Dashing into the room. Small. Shapeless. Wrecked and brown. A wild mane. Tiny feet flapping. His mouth is filled with sharp little teeth. And a tongue like a swollen slug. He screams like a moon calf. His eyes bulge and roll as they land on us in turn. He claims us by name and wants his fun. We scream too, clamber up the back of our chairs like chimpanzees, curse and trip in our haste to get the fuck away. He tears through the room and then goes through the other door. We can hear slapping as he runs. His screaming fades to a faraway mumble. I had my photo. Would you like to see it? Dost thou seek? Describe the sounds I made? A scream. Like a, a pig. If you stuck it with a knife, and sliced it sideways and bled it in a bucket. He's over me now. He's making me right. Sometimes in my head, like a smell. I'd like to sleep, but he won't let me. He wants me to write, and then maybe he'll... send me into a nightmare where we can spend some time alone. It's been a while since he first appeared in the night. Little goblin mummer man screaming his delight. We all ran for the door... Some were giggling, all part of a wonderful hoax. A silly mask of funny man playing the part by me and Steve, probably. They hadn't seen the door to reality was open. Little eye revealed. Tara was first, skinny legs running. She knew the truth. She threw the door open, but no street or night. Only her bedroom. We were upstairs. Nobody remembered going upstairs. We wanted out, not up. We charged downstairs. They were pale with that sick feeling. What the fuck are you two up to? Jim to me and Steve. I grabbed the front door and throw it open. Let me out. Let me out into the night. Out. Oh, such sweet delight. But no. Tara stares back. I'm in her bedroom. The others are behind her staring at me. What the fuck? Jim scowls. Eyes so wide I can see the fleshy red. There's mumbling. And I turn around. Dost thou seek? The Mummer Man, larking in the dim crack land, where the dark that shun of pain 
which called him forth, which called him down. I'm in the living room at Terrace House, writing. It's very dark and cold. I don't remember how I got here. I suppose the mummer man delivered me. There is no out. Only in. Out was fake. Never was. Only this. Only now. The dark. The cold. His mumbling sound. There's Tara in the corner. Rocking like a bobbin. He said that she looked like wood. And pushed it down her throat. She has to look up now, or she'll choke on her neck. Oh, he made her hurt with those hooks. She gargles like she's drowning in pig fat, but he won't stop. It's been days, I think. I'm hungry, but what is food? All I know is typing so you can read. Read it out loud if you like, if it might make you feel. Now we're downstairs, walking with our chins down a line of naughty children. They wanted the air to be cold so that our eyeballs would freeze. He'd pop them out slip them in a cup and crack them like eggs with a silver spoon. Then he'd ask us one by one if we'd be so kind as to bite off our fingers and serve them on a plate. Tasty shoulders to dip in the dew. It's only a bit of blood, so please stop crying. We're spoiling dinner for everyone else. He'd run in circles. Hallway, living room, dining room, kitchen, 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 screaming and screaming, eyeing us to check that we're good. Jim stopped speaking when the mummer man kissed him. His head is a cave. The edges quiver. He's gone larking in the gimcrack land where something bad will do bad things to him until there are no tears left. Can I go home? I ask. I sound pathetic. Like I did when I was little and mommy didn't like my muddy trousers. I want mom. Oh, just shut the fuck up. Steve growls from the darkness. Steve is an animal now. From Never Never Land. Naked and squatting as a fawn, pulling bits off. Left leg first. He has to twist the long bone 
and the hairs in the pop like a cap. Once upon a time in nursery rhyme, the mummer man mangled Father Time. Steve is saying a pretty song. There's a lot of blood on the floor, and he's sitting in it. The mummer man watches me with his visible eye while he sucks it up through a straw. Oh, that's dirty, I say. Mom wouldn't like a mess. Oh, it's okay. Steve shakes his leg to empty the blood. He's cleaning it up, that bacchanal. Get back to writing or you'll be next. Okay, 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 I'm, I'm doing it. Maybe if I do, then... Then I can go home. Or maybe not. <laughs> well... That about wraps it up. I don't know what else to write. The spell is done. And now I have to type the final score. Mummer man. We call you lad. Come play with us. And make us glad. I'm to take his picture. One last time. Click and flash in the dark, the nursery rhyme. I see him in the flash. It makes me cry and shuffle until there's a wall at my back and nowhere left to go. He wants you to see. He likes you to watch. Would you like to? I ask him to make it dark because I don't like to see him. And I'm his favorite, so he grants me a wish. He likes me. I brought him from reality into the sham. That's why he left me for last. His fingers will feel strange in my hair as they tug. Blood will go in my eyes when the clumps come out, and then it will be even darker. When my eyes fall out, I won't be able to see anymore anyway, and that, that will be okay. He says, I won't want to see what comes after that. A pinch, a tug, you may feel a little prick. He wants to do something with my jawbone. He's making sculpture, he says. And he needs it for the coup de grace. I'm to feel it when it's finished. He let me keep my fingers for typing and feeling. He doesn't like me screaming, so I'll have to hook my mouth at either side. One finger here, one finger there, 
tongue stuck out and pull as hard as I can. Yes, it will hurt, but I'm to think of mother. And she'd want me to be brave. Anyway, I won't be allowed to stop. Not until I feel it apart. Like an orange. I think I have to go now. No more typing. Ugh. The book club has changed lately. It's so terribly serious now. And not at all. Fun. Good evening. This is Otis Gyrie, host of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. You're listening to Horror Hill with host Jason Hill. And if you're hearing this, it's too late to run. The darkness has found you. <laughs> Sometimes, it seems, on the Horror Hill... The books open you. Our second story this evening concerns visitors in the dark of night. From places even darker still. From author Sarin Narnia. I give you... Visitation... My name is James Twain. At a little past 2 a.m. on the night of January 3rd, 2007, I was awakened by a knock at the front door of my recently purchased house in Little John, Illinois. When the knocking didn't stop, I got up, went down the stairs, and opened the door. A man was standing outside in the cold. A man of about 45, short, bald, wearing a white t-shirt and sweatpants. He said that he had flipped his car at the end of the road and wanted to know if he could use my phone. He didn't seem injured at all, and he confirmed this to me. He'd swerved to avoid a man on a bicycle coming around the corner and hit a freak bump and overcompensated by jerking the wheel to avoid a stump. The next thing he knew, the entire car was upside down. No one had been hurt, the man didn't seem too terribly disturbed by this, just inconvenienced. I let him come in and pointed him to the phone in the kitchen, and when he went that way, I stepped out onto the front stoop. Green Temple Road was a very long one, so I couldn't see the end of it. No other cars went in either direction. It was bitterly cold, so I went back inside quickly, 
The man was already coming back out of the kitchen. His call had been very quick. I asked him if he wanted some water, but he politely declined. I had to ask him the question of why he had walked all the way to my house instead of something closer. He shook his head and looked away, saying that he felt like he might be in shock. He looked up and down himself to make sure he really was not injured. He didn't remember hitting his head, but he couldn't be sure. I told him to sit down, that we really should call for an ambulance, but he absolutely did not want that. He apologized for troubling me and headed out the door without another word. I wondered who exactly he had called when he was in the kitchen. I watched him head to the west, walking more or less normally until he disappeared into the dark beyond a streetlight. Then I closed the door and I went back up to bed. Sleep was a long time in coming, as I imagined the stark terror my visitor must have felt when his car began to tumble. I wondered if I should have trusted him that the man on the bicycle wasn't hurt. But by the time I got to the end of the road, surely the police would be there. So, selfishly, I let it go. I checked the local newspaper the next day for any mention of a single car crash near me, but I struck out. That afternoon, when I was walking my dog, I went a little out of my way to roughly the spot where I figured the accident had occurred. From the way the man had described it, I figured I isolated the spot pretty well. But there was nothing out of the ordinary. Out of nagging curiosity, I knocked on the door of the house across the street. A woman answered, herding two children away from the door. I said hello and asked her if she had been awakened by an accident the night before. She said no, and coincidentally she had been awake right around 2 a.m. She'd been watching a movie on TV but hadn't heard a thing. I decided to let the mystery lay there. It was almost three weeks later that I came awake in the middle of the night again. It was 2.57 to be exact. I wasn't sure why I had awoken. There hadn't been any sound to make it happen. My dog, Lexa, was sleeping in a cushioned chair in the corner of the darkened room. But when I came awake, she immediately did too. Right away, she began to whimper and whine, which was very unusual. She got up and came to me, doing more of the same. I thought I'd use the bathroom and then go down to the kitchen to get her a dog treat. I started down the stairs to the bottom floor when I I got a strange feeling that I wasn't alone. I looked into the darkness of the living room and I saw a shape. Someone sitting on my sofa. Quickly, I reached behind me to turn on the light above the staircase. It cast enough light that I could see that my visitor from the other night was in my home again. Sitting on the sofa, staring into space. He was dressed exactly the same as he had been the night of the accident. His stare was vacant and strange. It was a full two seconds after I turned on the light that he turned his face to me. I muttered a very nervous, very, very unnerved hello making my disquiet very obvious, I hoped. The man looked up at me, and without changing his expression, he said hello in a friendly manner. 
I came to the bottom of the steps but moved no closer. I asked him if he needed help. He turned away from me, looking out the front window of the house again. He shook his head without a word. I asked him what he was doing here. I had to ask a second time because he didn't seem to hear me in whatever daze he was stuck in. The next time he spoke, his voice was somewhat softer. I had to lean forward to hear him. He said, They were just dolls to me. Or something like that. I couldn't be sure if that was exactly right. I took a couple steps toward him, but stopped short of actually entering the living room. I told him he had to go, but he only kept staring through the window. Without hesitating, I walked quickly into the kitchen, letting him out of my sight, and I took my cell phone out of its charger and dialed the police. I didn't want the man arrested, just taken to wherever he needed to go. Something was very wrong with him. As I dialed, I walked back to the living room to tell the man that I was calling someone to take him out of there unless he wanted to leave himself, but he was already gone. The space on the sofa where he had been was empty. I turned to the front door, but it obviously hadn't been opened. There hadn't even been time, and I would have heard it. I looked up the staircase. Lexa was there, whimpering. I would have heard creaking footsteps on the bare wood if he had gone up there, but... Again, it had been maybe ten seconds from the time I'd left him to the time I'd returned... He couldn't even be gone. None of it made sense. I stood in the living room for several minutes after that, looking out the window at the roadside. Lexa never left my side. I went to the front door and I opened it. I decided, for my peace of mind, that I wanted to make absolutely certain the man wasn't around anymore. So, I went to the edge of my driveway and looked in both directions. The street was empty, of course. Or so I thought at first. But then, I did see something. All the way down Green Temple Road, just before the point where it curved out of sight, there was a streetlight. Sitting beneath that streetlight, with his back against the pole, was a man. He was so far away that at first I couldn't even be sure it was my visitor. But then the faraway stranger raised a hand and gently waved at me. I did not wave back. I could see no details of his face, but it was obvious that he was wearing a white t-shirt, just sitting there in the cold, beneath the streetlight. I turned and went back into the house. I went up the stairs, Lexa following me, and I went into my bedroom, crossing into the window that looked out on the spot where I'd just seen the man, but I wasn't able to see him after all. There were trees blocking the view, and even in winter I couldn't see through the leafless branches. At some point I felt comfortable enough that I could lay down and close my eyes. Sleep wouldn't come, and didn't come for the rest of the night. I just couldn't be sure that he wasn't coming back. The next day I was tutoring players at the golf club I managed when I got a call from my ex-wife about the house we'd sold a year before. It reminded me to check something on my cell phone. I looked at all my outgoing calls for the past month. 
The information for each was stored. Looking at the night of the stranger's accident, I didn't see any outgoing call at all. He had gone into the kitchen to use my phone, but no call had been placed. That night, back at home, Lexus whimpering actually woke me up. It was only a little past midnight, and I'd been asleep for maybe an hour. She stood at the side of my bed. There was nothing really urgent about her sounds. She just seemed unhappy about something. I got up and felt immediately afraid. I stood in one spot, shushing the dog so I could hear anything that might be going on in the house. But there was nothing. No sound. Before I went downstairs, I looked around for some sort of object I could hold. Something heavy, just to make myself feel more secure in case the stranger had gotten inside my house again and become more unpredictable. It was going to have to be a golf club. I picked it up and took my cell phone with me as I went to the staircase. I turned the light on before I headed down and waited for any sound any sign that someone might be down there. Again, it was just impossible to tell. The living room at least was empty. From there, I went into the kitchen and went to the cupboard to get a glass. That was when I stepped on something in the dark. I looked down and saw three small objects on the kitchen floor spread out. They were dolls children's dolls. The one I had stepped on was a standard Barbie type of doll. The others were similar but formed to be children. The adult doll was beside the counter where the sink was, and the other two were a few feet away at the base of the refrigerator. They were all face down. I didn't get too close to look at them at first. I left them where they were and continued through the house turning on all the lights and checking all the doors. Before I opened the basement door, I replaced the golf club I was holding with a baseball bat from my tote bag. I hadn't changed the light bulb in the basement since it had blown out a week before, too distracted to pick one up at the grocery store. I rarely went down there. I took the flashlight from one of the kitchen drawers and opened the door, shining it down the stairs. I called out, asking if anyone was there. No response. I descended three of the steps, their loud creaking making me wince inwardly. I didn't want to make any sound. I moved the beam of the flashlight across the basement, and I didn't see anything out of the ordinary. The only place left to check was back upstairs. I went from room to room, ready to swing the bat, but I was alone. When that was done, I came back down and picked up the dolls, setting them on the counter. There was nothing unusual about them except their presence in the house. I had eaten dinner in the kitchen and then more or less gone right to bed. Sometime in the past two hours they'd appeared. All the doors in the house were locked. I put on some clothes and I took Lexa and I left. I didn't want to be in that house at all. I wouldn't be able to sleep there, not tonight. Not for a while. 
There was a dumpy motel about five miles away on I-30, and I checked in there. I didn't know what else to do. When morning came, I went back to the house and found that nothing else had happened. Before night came, though, I went back to the motel and checked right back in. Over a solitary dinner in some chain restaurant, I sat and thought about what came next. I am a pragmatic and rational man, but I had an experience as a teenager that changed my beliefs in a powerful way. I was 13 years old at the time, miserable because of my mother's remarriage to a man I hated. The perfect example of the bad stepfather, a tough disciplinarian who I feared. One night, I was in bed alone in my room very late, when I felt a light brushing on my ankle. I kicked what I thought was a bug or something away from me, but it returned a minute later. It felt like a finger trying to trace something on my ankle. Again and again I shifted, and at one point got out of bed and stood up, but when I returned to a prone position, it came back. There, in the dark, I began to become very afraid. I didn't want to turn the lights on for fear my stepfather would see them and become angry that I was awake. So I lay there in my bed, shutting my eyes tight. This time, I let the finger trace a broken path on my ankle until it stopped 30 seconds later. It didn't return that night, during which I stayed awake until dawn, but it came back a week later. The sensation could only be described as a light finger riding on my ankle, making me come awake from a deep sleep. Utterly terrified, I nevertheless suffered in silence. I couldn't cry out. My stepfather would come running. He would be furious. The finger repeated its motions three times before I wrenched my ankle away. When it returned once more, about three weeks later, I tried to sense what it was that it was writing on my ankle. It was a single word, and that word I deduced was... Toys. I know I wasn't mistaken. I knew this was what it was. Three times and then it stopped. I didn't have to jerk my leg away. It happened once more at the end of the month. A day after my birthday. I never told anyone. I thought it was a phenomenon that would never happen again and I was so intimidated by my own weakness that I thought something was wrong with me. But then, one night, several weeks later, I came awake in the dark, and I began to feel a little sick to my stomach. I remember I was lying on my side, facing the wall. My clock radio said 3.10. I had left the local rock station on very low when I'd fallen asleep, but now it was silent, off the air. There was the tiny sound of low static in its place. It was at that exact moment that, all at once, out of nowhere, I felt a cold human hand seize my right ankle, gripping it tightly. 
My will broke at once. I screamed, and I thrashed in terror. The invisible hand let go and vanished. My mother and my stepfather came into the room as I cried, and I simply broke down before them. All the terror I had somehow bottled up coming out in tears and whimpers. I was practically doubled over with the force of it all. It frightened my parents to the point where they obviously didn't believe me when I told them that I kept having terrible dreams of dying. But they didn't push the issue. After that, I was never again awakened in the middle of the night by the feeling of something touching me. But I knew my occasional awakenings at three or four in the morning as a college student and then as an adult were a remnant of the fear of feeling that hand return. Because of this episode, I was more than ready to believe that the man who had entered my house was not truly alive. There were a couple of things I needed from the house, so I did swing back over there at about 8.30, two nights after I'd left upon finding those dolls. As I pulled up, my headlights picked out a man standing on the doorstep. He looked like he was affixing something to the door. I didn't recognize him when he turned around. I got out of my car very cautiously as he approached, but his demeanor set me at ease. He introduced himself as John and said he used to own my house before me. We had never met. I'd never had any dealings with anyone besides the realtor since the house had been vacant for a year and a half before it was sold. I shook his hand and he was apologetic. He said he had explained things in the letter he was about to leave for me, and it was awkward to be here now, having to explain in person. He asked if we could talk for a bit inside. I said okay. I turned on all the lights inside. John and I sat in the living room, he sitting in the exact spot where the stranger had. John explained that after the house was built, he'd lived in it with his wife for only six weeks before moving out. The realtor had told me it was because of a sudden military deployment, but John said this wasn't true. He wanted to know if I had encountered anything unusual since moving in. I found myself telling him almost the whole story of the night visitor, and he seemed to understand perfectly. The same man had come to him in the night as well the year before. There had been three such visits, he told me. His story and mine were almost identical. At first I couldn't believe it, but I made sure to parcel out my information carefully so he couldn't simply follow my tale. He mentioned the dolls in the kitchen before I even could. We rose and he pointed out the spots on the floor where he had seen them and the experience mirrored mine precisely. The events were repeating themselves. When I asked him what the third visit from the stranger was like, he fell quiet for a moment, disturbed by the memory. He had awoken one night to see a shape at the foot of his bed. It was the stranger. John's wife had screamed and screamed beside him as the stranger merely turned away with perfect calm and walked out slowly through the bedroom door. John 
who had begun already to believe they were dealing with a ghost, had calmed her and held her down instead of attacking the stranger. And then, two nights later, the cycle had begun again. With the stranger knocking at the door and asking if he could come inside to use the phone after a car accident. His manner, his speech, his movements had been identical to the first encounter. John had slammed the door on him and he and his wife had left the house that very night, never to return. The stranger's name, John told me, was Mason Berkman. He was a postal carrier who had lived in this house from 1992 to 1997 when he'd killed his wife and two daughters with a hatchet one night. He'd tricked them into going into the basement, then waited for them in the kitchen to return, attacking them right there. He had done this for no other reason, it was believed, than that he was having an affair with a woman across town, and he was afraid of being discovered. After the killings, he had gotten in his car and driven at great speed toward the end of Green Temple Road, losing control and flipping when he had, ironically, swerved to avoid a complete stranger while his family, his children, lay butchered behind him. It must have been an instinctual reaction. He hadn't been killed immediately either. Berkman had climbed out of his car and, bleeding internally most likely in deep shock, had stumbled down the road. He'd made it all the way back to his own home, collapsing in the foyer, dead just around the corner from the kitchen. This had all been in the newspapers at the time. I'd never known about it, coming here from out of state. John had returned to the house when he'd heard from the realtor that I'd been here for a month. He had to know if the haunting was still going on. He apologized for what I had endured and offered to buy the house back from me. I asked him what he thought would happen if I stayed. He wasn't sure. Maybe there would never be any real danger. Or maybe Mason Bergman's appearance would metamorphose into something else. John and I talked for a total of two hours and then he suggested something a little strange, which was that he wait up in the house for Berkman to return. Like me, he was both horrified by the goings-on, yet also compelled to find out more. But I thought it best that neither one of us ever come back here. We both left the house after shaking hands. He drove his way back to a different county and I drove to my shoddy motel. I was unwilling to sell the house to anyone else, but financially unable to keep it. By the end of April, I was in desperate straits. It was then that I began to research and write to organizations that might be interested in the house as a site of paranormal investigation. Reputable organizations were extremely difficult to find... I did receive a call back from one in particular, the Fernmore Fund for Psychic Research. The woman on the phone asked me to write my story down in as much detail as I possibly could, starting several weeks before the visit from Mason Berkman, and ending not with his second appearance and with the discovery of the dolls, 
but everything that came afterward. Everything. This she stressed especially. So I did so, and sent her a twenty-page letter this time instead of two. A week after that, she came to see me personally. We met in an Irish bar on the side of Route 22. I end this story by saying that a family of six lives in my house now. They're in no danger of any supernatural visitation. The woman from the Fenmore Fund explained it all to me. It's been four years since I met Mason Berkman. A few days before movers came to remove all my things from the house permanently, I returned one more time. I went at night. I almost never made it out of the car. I was shaking so badly. I spent some minutes calming myself, disappointed that if I was able to remain silent for so long with a ghost touching me at age 13, I couldn't bring myself to confront one more, one who could not possibly harm me. Eventually, I was able to stand on my front steps put the key in the lock and push open the door. Even before I went inside, I could sense a presence in there. He would be in the living room, of course, waiting. Waiting there every night at the exact same time. I moved forward and looked to my left into the living room. John, the man who had pretended to be a concerned homeowner, from up north and my ally sat on my sofa in a pool of moonlight on his lap he held a shotgun John Horace brother of Livy Berkman and uncle of Beverly and Samantha Berkman stared into space waiting for the cruel monster who had slaughtered his loved ones to return so he could exact revenge his ghost had tricked me into allowing him into my house four years before. And now that he was here, he would never truly leave. There may even come a night, the psychic researcher had told me, when the two men would meet. And there would be great violence. Or perhaps I would witness John Horace's suicide by hanging, which had occurred a year after his sister's burial. There in my home, John Horace slowly turned his head to look at me. He asked me if I had seen a man outside drive off in a Ford Escort. I said no. He asked me if I had heard a crash. I said no. He then told me I shouldn't go into the kitchen. I left him then and exited the house. To this day, I think but am not certain that I saw rope burns on the man's neck. No one but me would ever be able to see either John Horace or Mason Berkman or the dolls on the kitchen floor again. It was my innate nature that allowed me, or forced me, to see them and become part of their demented drama and to feel that icy hand on my ankle three decades ago. What it also means, I've been told, 
is that I may not be done with encountering the supernatural world. Another ghost could appear to me at any time. In fact, if I were to return to my childhood home even now and fall asleep in the room I grew up in, I might feel the hand again writing the word toys on my ankle. The only real escape for someone like me is to keep moving and keep forgetting what I've seen and felt. Just last Friday night, I was at a party for a technology executive at a nice house in the country. There were at least a hundred people there. I was having a good time meeting people. I noticed someone who didn't seem to be moving in a chair in the corner. Looking more closely, I saw it was a young woman sitting straight upright whose flesh had gone an ashen gray all over her face drawn and blank both her corneas were utterly bloodshot to the point where they were almost black she was motionless dead dead for a long time people moved all around her not seeing her I walked closer and took in every detail, standing there with a scotch in my hand. She wore a necklace with a blue stone. Her ankles had been tied together with wire. Her feet were gone. Severed. Blood was dripping on the floor. I left the party and drove home through the dark countryside and instead of wondering who I had seen and why it was there I had seen her. I simply began to hope that my life would not be such a long one. That my affliction would end before it drove me mad. Thank you for joining me tonight at the Horror Hill. The Mummer Man was written by David Sharrick. David Sharrick is a 43-year-old artist and writer with a deranged interest in scaring people with words, a personal amusement which never seems to get old. He lives in a small haunted cottage on the Cornish coast in the company of his wife, two children, and a spectral girl who likes to hide the car keys. David sometimes writes the odd horror story on Reddit's No Sleep under the pseudonym Suddenly Satan and is best known for The Mummer Man and The Weirdness, both of which feature in Reddit's all-time best of index, single story and series compilation categories. David also enjoys writing role-playing games and has recently written an illustrated and apocalyptic Lovecraftian horror RPG called Strange Aeon, available to purchase at the publisher's website, www.foreverpeople.co.uk. Visitation was written by Sara Narnia. Sara Narnia is the author of the Knife Point Horror Podcast, and also writes audiobooks collected in the podcast 
those snowits you read to me, they'll never be forgotten. He can be found at www.sorin-narnia.com and wandering the cafes of Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by, yours truly, Jason Hill. Additional performers have been featured when necessary to bring the tales to life. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Luke Hodgkinson under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's artwork and logo by Jason Hill. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure that you never miss an episode. And please, leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Thursday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button too to tell us how we're doing. Oh, and if you could, please leave a kind word or even a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, including more performance from yours truly, and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Thursday with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, this is Jason Hill. Good evening. Good evening.